Well, Merry Christmas to you, and uh, it's a delight to be able to gather with you here at Calvary Baptist Church as a church family, as a church body, for our Christmas Eve communion service. Please open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, if you're visiting us for the first time, I sure hope I get to meet you as well in the lobby. And My name is Jim, and I get to serve as one of the two pastors here, two full-time pastors, and I just... I'm so delightful that, er, delighted that you are with us visiting, and I hope you'll take Pastor Michael up on his offer of a gift at the Information Center for all of our first-time guests this morning. The stage is beautiful for the season, of course, and, and by the way, if you have sponsored one of these poinsettias, we want to remind you to take yours home with you this morning after the service, and there's going to be several leftovers and uh, those, are, those are open season if you didn't sponsor one. Wait just a little bit, give a little bit of time after the service and let the folks get theirs that want to take theirs home that they paid for, but we need to see them all go home today too. So we're going to be giving a lot away. I love the Christmas trees and the Christmas lights. We seem to be talking a lot about lights and light during the Christmas season. And that... It, and compelled me to do a little research. I found out something I didn't know you probably did, but Thomas Edison invented the first electric Christmas light in 1882. Um, it was him with his colleague Edward Johnson that they strung together 80 colored electric lights around a Christmas tree in Edison's New York City laboratory. And uh, that's not the one we have at Greenfield Village. I verified that this morning. Uh, some other trivia, the first Christmas lights were used to decorate the White House in 1894. President Grover Cleveland was the first president to decorate the White House with these lights. He had 100 electric lights strung around the Christmas tree on the South Lawn. 100, back in the day. But I also discovered that one of the world's largest Christmas light displays is at the National Grove of lights in Grove City, Ohio. I, I'm sorry for saying Ohio in the pulpit, but it was part of the, the thing here. I had to say it. And this, this particular display features over 3 million lights. That's, that's amazing. Um, I also found it interesting that the most Christmas lights ever used on a single tree at the time of this research was um, over half a million on one tree. Um, that happened in 2014 in Norway, and uh, they were actually uh, over half a million, yes. And the tree itself was 200 feet tall. Interesting. That won't fit in my living room. Someone else uh, reported this. The longest strand of Christmas lights back in 2009 was five miles long. Strung, uh, hooked together end to end, it went five miles that was a, a city in Australia, but the current world record happens at a, a private residence in Unionville, New York. This year, this particular family has strung together, seriously, 40 miles of Christmas lights to use on their property. They have a pond, they have a lot of property, and they just totally light it up with 720,000 Christmas lights. That requires, by the way, if you were wondering, eight miles of extension cords. So now you know. 
Between 150 and 2 million light sets are sold in the United States each holiday season. And one source said that Christmas lights uh, use about 6% of the nation's electrical load each December in our country. Interesting. Yeah, this is the season we talk a lot about lights. Not only in this season, but on this Christmas Eve together. And that's why I'm drawn to one verse this morning to prepare our hearts for this table on Christmas Eve this year. And that one verse is found in John chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of the world. Of life. Just one verse this morning, and especially that one phrase where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, in just a few minutes, I'm going to step down to that table and read to you two verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is Paul giving the instructions about the Lord's table to the church. I read the same passage every time. I I could go from the Gospels, but I'm just drawn to 1 Corinthians 11. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I got what I'm giving to you in these two verses directly from Jesus. Paul wasn't taught this by another man. He got it from, by revelation from Jesus, the ascended Lord. And I'm going to read these words in a few minutes from that table. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Listen, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And here we go again. In remembrance of me. So we come to this table, and in God's providence, it happens on Christmas Eve for us this time. We come to this table, and we have a homework assignment directly from Jesus through Paul to us. And it's as we come to this table, he says, do this in remembrance of me. What does that mean, in remembrance of me? It's not only Jesus saying, remember what I did, but it's more. It's what I did, listen, because of who I am. We are to remember Jesus. So that begs the question, so who is he? Who is this Jesus that demands that we remember who he is? That's why I greatly appreciate the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is extremely helpful in nailing the identity of Jesus Christ, just down tight. First of all, John, in John chapter 20, verse 31, just by way of introduction, says, okay, in case you missed it, you're at the end of my gospel, in case you missed it, I want to tell you why I wrote all these chapters, so to speak. Why did I write my gospel? In John 20, 31, it says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. That's his purpose for writing. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
We're not trying to hide his identity. We're not dancing around it. John says, that's why I wrote this. The theme is stated. But also in this gospel, we see proofs of Jesus' identity. We see proofs, and it's two things. Scholars are quick to point out that Jesus himself says, there are two things to watch for in this gospel that prove that I'm the Son of God. Two things. His word and his works. His word and his works. And, and I'll show you this. In John 5, 36, Jesus, in saying to his critics, these words, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father have given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. You see both elements there. You have his testimony. That's what he said, what he taught, and also what he did. But it's even more clear in two more passages in John. In John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. In other words, it's his word and his works. Prove that he's the Son of God. We see this again in John chapter 14 in the upper room, verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. There's a, there's a command to believe what I say. And if that you still struggle with that, believe because of the works, the, the, the miracles that you've seen firsthand. I mean, John is just all about removing any doubt as to who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, the way John crafts his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he only lists eight miracles in addition to the resurrection. That's a, that's a foregone conclusion. He only chooses of all the miracles that Jesus did, eight to include in his gospel. These are the works. It was turning water into wine. It was healing the official's son. It was healing the lame man. It was feeding the multitude just one of the times. It was his walking on the water, our Lord's walking on the water. It was his healing of a blind man. It was his raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then after his resurrection, it was a, a miraculous catch of fish. That's all that John includes. But these signs prove the identity of Jesus right alongside what he taught. It's interesting, in John 20, 33, John even says, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And in John 21, 25, John writes, I suppose if we wrote down everything that Jesus did and said, the world couldn't contain him. But John narrowed it down to these eight. Why? Because Jesus proved he's a son of God by what he said and what he did. The miracles he performed and the promises and the claims he made. And we're supposed to remember who Jesus is. We're supposed to remember not only what he did, but because of who he is, what he did. Then the Gospel of John is very helpful. But there's one more reason I'm thankful for the Gospel of John. We hear Jesus teaching and we read and watch with our mind's eye the miracles being performed, especially these particular eight miracles. But there's something else we notice. Seven times in this gospel, Jesus makes an I am claim. 
He's the Lord of the Old Testament with these claims, but it's also giving us a specific nuance of who he is. There are seven I am statements, uh, and, and I will argue for the next year that each of these I am statements is tethered to what we're going to celebrate this morning at the communion table. Each of them. As a matter of fact, he's called in chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. This is his self-disclosure of his identity. If if you're still wondering, Jesus is saying, let me just give you the answer. In chapter 6, I am the bread of life. In chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. Again in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a bundle deal. In chapter 15, in the upper room, before he's betrayed, he says, I am the true vine. Those are six of his I am statements. But the one that grips me this Christmas Eve morning is that one about light where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. See, what does that mean? What does that mean? I think we can summarize it this way, and then I'll try to prove it. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, we are understanding the fact that he alone breaks through the darkness. That's it. That's it. This is a series I'm going to return to as we go through the next, today and then the next six communion services, which will bring us to the holiday season next year. We're going to consider one I am statement, one of these I am statements, every communion table, Lord willing. I'm going to use a simple outline. It'll be the same outline for all seven statements. First of all, we will answer a when question. And the one question is, what's the context of him saying this statement? And then secondly, each time, we're going to answer a what question. In other words, what does this title actually mean? What's the context that it's set in? And what does it mean? And then the third question we'll answer every time we come to the Lord's table this next 12 months is this. It's a how question. Specifically, How does this I am statement of Jesus in the Gospel of John prepare me for communion? Simple outline each time. Let's start it with this this statement, this claim, this statement of truth. In fact, I am the light of the world. What's the context for this? When was this statement uttered? Well, as you have your Bibles open on your lap, you find out that as John, as it's laid out in our copies, our English copies, and in the Greek, the, the, uh, the, the Greek New Testament going back uh, to within a couple hundred years of the actual writing of the Gospel of John, um, we have verses 1 through 11 in chapter 8. It's a familiar story. It's the story of the adulterous woman, something about writing on the ground, and then the silence of crickets. That's my paraphrase of this. Let me remind you what the context is. Chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple. 
And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery right in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. What then do you say? And they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down right then, and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, Who is without sin among you? Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he, Jesus, was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. And from now on, sin no more. That's the context. Some of you guys might get a dude gift if you exchange gifts tomorrow or tonight. And that dude gift won't be a pocket knife. I've been told I use that pocket knife stuff too much in illustrations. One of my teens at our church called me out on this, so I'm going to try to go 20, 24 without doing a pocket knife illustration. You say you just did. I'm in 2023 right now, okay? Just giving you fair warning. You can call me out, and I'll buy you a Coke or beef jerky if if I mess up next year. So I'm going to do a flashlight illustration. (laughs) Some of you are going to get a dude present, and you might get a 300 lumen um, keychain O-light flashlight, and uh, it's a very strong flashlight. You can use it to, to be a problem to other people, blind them, right, or you can take the cat out, the dog out, go find the cat, um, or you can use it to walk through the woods, hike at dawn or at, at, in the dark, um, Lots of uses for that. What is the point of a flashlight with 300 lumens? It's just going to put right in front of you what you might not have been seeing otherwise because of the darkness. You know, I look at the story we just read, and it's as if Jesus is, is, a, is a light in that scene in the temple court during the Feast of Booths, And because he's there, he's revealing what otherwise would remain unknown, unseen, and ignored. I wonder if you saw it as we went through there. You say, well, what is it that he is revealing here in this context? He's revealing that he is the word of God. I believe that. This talk of a sin standard. In other words, if he's going to ask these Pharisees and scribes um, if they too are sinners, 
you can't talk about sin without having a standard to measure it up against. Paul says in Romans, in that wonderful passage in Romans 7 and 8, that I wouldn't have known about sin unless the law told me what sin was. And I stood condemned. There has to be an understanding and an assumption of a standard. And of course, with the Jews, we're in the temple court. Keep that in mind. Their standard was the law, the Ten Commandments that came through Moses from God. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading in chapter 8, you're going to see talk of the law. Moses is on the mind of the whole crowd there that day, including this woman who will be judged by a source that is outside of herself, and Jesus is going to bring that source to bear on the Pharisees and scribes, and it's a measure outside of themselves. It's the law, the Old Testament law. So there's all this talk of a sin standard going on, and then twice, I'm just curious about Jesus stooping and writing on the ground. And not just writing on the ground, he's not using a stick, he's using his finger. Why does John point that out? We don't know. We're, admitting, we're admittedly entering into, I wonder if there's a connection here. It appears to be. We're talking about a sin standard. We're talking about people being guilty under that standard. What's going on? Is Jesus just bored with the Pharisees and scribes? He's like, I'm just tired of these guys. I'm just going to draw on the ground and maybe they'll go away. Is that what's going on? No, there's something going on on the ground. Um, is he ignoring them? Is he bothered by them? What, is he drawing a picture? No, something's going on that clears the court, literally. I don't know. We can't be sure because the Scripture falls silent on that detail. But this gospel is part of the Old and the New Testament. It is a whole. And I find it interesting in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Do you remember, do you remember when Jesus cast out uh, the, the demons? And the Pharisees are like, uh, hey, we got some guys that can do that too. And he says to them, if I do it by the power of God, or by the finger of God, then the power of God is present. It's an interesting statement from Jesus. Fingers on his mind. But then I go back to the Old Testament even. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 19, as the plagues are storming down onto Egypt, the wise men say to the king of Egypt, this is the finger of God. Interesting. I don't know if that's on our Lord's mind. But I am intrigued when I go back to Exodus chapter 31, verse 18 in the Old Testament. I read these words about God. Listen, Yahweh, the Lord, when he gives the law to Moses. That's the scene. Listen to this verse in Exodus 31, 18. When he, Yahweh, had finished speaking with him, Moses, on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone. Listen to this phrase. It's just curious. Written by the finger of God. You say, wow, that's interesting. It's super interesting because of all the finger passages here. That one's re re recorded twice. It's repeated in Deuteronomy 
chapter 9 and verse 10. In the Jewish mind, how did the law come? They would have treasured the Exodus and Deuteronomy passage we're looking at here. They would have known that Moses didn't receive a letter from God and it just shows up and there's an inscription. No, the inscription was pressed in by the very finger of God, whatever that means. What's Jesus writing on the ground? I don't know. You don't know either for sure. But I do know what's on the mind of the Jews in that temple court that day. And it's that God is the source of his word. And how haunting would it be when someone is asking for a standard to judge a sinful, guilty woman, how eerie and haunting is it to imagine our Lord using his finger to once again write out the law in front of them, just on the ground. And then step away and say, who's guiltless here? We don't know what he wrote. We don't. But I do know that the Jewish mind had this always present. And I'm also moved in this direction as well, the, per, the, the, the perhaps reality that he's writing the law on the ground because how John starts his gospel in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the what? The Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is introduced in this gospel as the very Word, eternal Word of God. I think that there's a strong chance that what is going on here in this scene is a reminder and a claim to being the very word of God, therefore the standard giver, therefore the standard himself. He's the logos, the word of God. It's like like people have this right in front of them. These Pharisees and scribes, and don't forget the woman, are standing in the presence of this man, and without him shining his light on it, they don't realize he is the source of the word of God. But there's something else he shines his light on in that scene, and it's, it's the reality of guilt. And again, if you pronounce guilt, it has to be against a standard, and the standard was the Ten Commandments in the Jewish mind. It wasn't the Ten Commandments plus something. It wasn't the, the law of Moses, uh, the Pentateuch plus something. It's, it's this. If there's guilt, it's measured against a source. And I want you to remember here that when I say he's shining light on the reality of guilt as being a problem for all people, he's not just looking at the woman, but he's not ignoring her. She was sinning. Don't know where the guy was and why he was conveniently left back at the house. But this lady is in the center of the crowd, the center of the Pharisees and scribes with Jesus looking at her. He doesn't say she hasn't sinned. As a matter of fact, he's going to say in verse 11, Stop sinning. But it's the, it's the Pharisees and the scribes that Jesus raises his eyes to as well. Perhaps pointing to what he wrote on the ground, perhaps. And he doesn't let them out from under guilt. It says the older ones started leaving first because they have the wisdom of life and the honesty with their heart, maybe, that comes later in life. But by their example the younger men left too. Every last one of the men that brought this woman to be condemned and stoned, they're gone. Why? 
They were measured against a standard and they were found guilty. Jesus is shining his light on the reality of guilt. He's shining his light on the the reality that he is the word of God. But he's also shining his light in this context on the real possibility of forgiveness. The real possibility of forgiveness. It's these words that he speaks to the to the, the lady caught in adultery, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. What? She's forgiven? Oh, the scribes and Pharisees hated this. And we studied this in our, our series in Luke, in Luke chapter 5, verse 21, after Jesus declared a man's sins forgiven, the guy that came down through the roof through, by the help of his friends, you remember what the religious zealots on the scene said? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus. He's the one that's the word of God. He's the one that is the standard that declares guilt. It's a real problem. and He alone is the one, because he is God, that can forgive. Well, you say, was it clear? Was his message clear? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was crystal clear to these guys. Because they reassemble again. (laughs) And they have a reaction that's all too familiar. Look at verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered and said to them, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. And even in your law, here's the talk of the Mosaic law. It's the topic of discussion. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So they were saying to him, where's your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. I would put it this way. You don't know me, therefore you don't know the word of God you think you know. You don't know anything ultimate about guilt by my standard of mercy and grace. And you don't know personally and practically what it means to have your sins forgiven. You don't know me, he says. So it's like Jesus in the scene, in this context, is like a flashlight lighting up what would normally be be ignored or unseen or unknown, the fact that he's the word of God. The The real reality of guilt and the real possibility of forgiveness. Now, a bunch of you have study Bibles on your lap or you have uh, cross references in the NASB center column reference. And there's a note about verses, verse 53 of chapter 7, all the way down to chapter 8, verse 11. It's an important note, and we need to wrestle with it in our Bible studying and in our interpretation. It says there's a question as to the authenticity of these verses. 
Now, I'm not here to tear down the Bible and would never do that. But um, we have to admit what, what we see, and that's in the oldest and most trustworthy, oldest manuscripts of the Greek. This is not in there at that point. As a matter of fact, there's no recorded church father that comments on this until the 12th century. Now, I believe it was in there earlier, but here's something else that complicates things. It's, it's floating around. Uh, sometimes there's three or four different places in different copies of, God, of John's gospel where this story shows up, not always right here in chapter 8. Um, and on top of that, it shows up once in Luke, and then it disappears from there in the course of history. So what do we do with this? I still agree with McCar- John MacArthur and others that we leave it here, and, and we'd be ready to, dis- to study it and comment on it because we need to play it safe with God's word. But let's just suppose that this isn't the chapter it's at least supposed to be in. What if it's an oral tradition that was passed down and was inserted here or in other places? You see, what does that do with the whole context? I say to you, nothing. Because that means that we are going to go from chapter 7, verse 52, and start right with verse 12 of chapter 8. What's going on in chapter 7 of John's Gospel? The Feast of Booths. And, and our Lord is in debates with the Pharisees. They're coming after him four times, no less than four times. The crowd is starting to wonder if he's the Messiah. And there's a focus on the, the boldness of his teaching and his claim to be of the Father and to speak the truth. And then we hit the story. Uh, that we just read at the beginning of chapter 8. But if we didn't hit that story, look again how verse 12 starts. Then again, Jesus spoke to them saying, look, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Everything that this story in verses uh, 1 through 11 is teaching is going to be highlighted as well in chapter 7. And there's actually a a, a seamless bringing together of chapter 8, verse 12, with chapter 7, verse 52. It still teaches that he is the light of the world. That's the context. Just quickly, what's the content? What's the content? What, is, what does this statement mean? I am the light of the world. I believe that we have four realities that this statement gives us about Jesus alone. First of all, number one, he is the source of truth. He, he is the exclusive truth. He is the light of the world. There's one light. Anything else that claims to be a light or throw a beam is false. He's not a light of the world. He is the light of the world. This is the exclusivity of truth. Other claims of light are false. They are the fruit of a rebellious population of the earth since the fall. Other lights, whether it's an, a light against uh, the, uh, the creative order, whether it's the light of indulge yourself in immorality, if it's the, the light of being perverse, the light of idolatry, the light of substance abuse, the light of the love of money, 
the light of cults, the light of human philosophy. It's all darkness. There's one light. And Jesus said, I alone am the light of the world. But it doesn't just give us the exclusivity of truth. That little phrase, the light of the world, focus in on that part, the world. And that tells us the second reality. And it's the universality of error. The universality of error. It's not just, I am the light of Southeast Michigan. I am the light of Germany. I am the light of Russia, of China. It's the world. Why? Because the problem of sin and the problem of suffering is constant in every culture. The fruit of the fall of man is present in every people group, in every generation, and many times without any recognition, and most of the time without any regret. This is the universality of error. You say, how good is man on his own? Well, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 19 says, the way of the wicked is like darkness. And they do, not over, they do not know over what they stumble. This little phrase, I am the light of the world, talks about the exclusivity of truth. It talks about the universality of error. And it talks, thirdly, about the mission of rescue. The mission of rescue. And Pastor Michael read these verses from John chapter 1 uh, earlier. It says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, even, you could also translate it this way, did not overpower it. He was a true light, which comes into the world, verse 9 of chapter 1, enlightening every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came on a rescue mission. The exclusive truth of Jesus, the word of God, crashed through the universality of error, on a mission to rescue. And it's interesting too. And he puts us on mission too if we are in the light. He said in John 20 verse 21, Jesus said to his disciples, peace be with you. As the Lord has sent me, I also send you the gospel rescue. The mission of evangelism is why he came. And he broke through the darkness. He rescued us if our faith is in him. And now he says, you're on mission. But that little phrase, the light of the world, doesn't just speak of the exclusivity of truth, the universality of error, and the mission of rescue, but it also speaks to us in Christ as to what our walk as believers is supposed to be. You see, light produces lights. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Paul even says in Ephesians 5, 8, you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That's what that phrase means. It births those four realities, but now we come to this table. How does this statement, I am the light of of the world. How does it prepare us for this table, this Christmas Eve? It teaches us how to pray differently. All of these will teach us how to pray at this table differently. We're going to have a threefold prayer. If we understand a little bit more what I am the light of the world means, we're going to say, Lord, my light, thank you 
for opening my eyes when I could not see. Thank you. John 9.39, for judgment I came into the world, Jesus says, so that those who do not know, uh, those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Lord, thank you for opening my eyes when I could not see. Secondly, Lord, my light, thank you for giving me life when I was not alive. John 5.21, just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. It changes how we pray at this table. And there's a third prayer, Lord, my light, thank you for showing me how to live in any scenario. Because you are light, Lord, and I'm in you, I live as light. I'll never be in a situation where you don't give me wisdom from your word, what to do, what to say, and where to go. That's how it prepares us for communion. One of my wife's and my favorite Christmas CDs was put out by Sovereign Grace Ministries several years ago. We sang one song from that album today. There's another one on that album I like a lot as well. It's called Heaven Has Come to Us. Listen to the first phrase, first chorus. Unto us from on high, reaching down into the deepest night, to the world hope has come. In the dark, the light of life has dawned. What a mystery. Oh, what love. Oh, how can it be that heaven has come to us? I don't know if you're going to put 100 lights on your tree or 5,000 lights on your tree. Every last one of those lights today and tomorrow must remind you of Jesus and this table. I am the light of the world. This table is actually blindingly bright. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making it so clear who you are. We're supposed to remember you at this table, what you did because of who you are, and you say, for starters, I am the light of the world. So Father, as we come now to this table and participate in these elements, may you be glorified, may our hearts be stilled right now, and may our hearts be rejoicing and thanking you for giving us eyes to see, giving us life to live, and giving us wisdom to follow. In Jesus' name.